Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, April 14th. In today's news, school closures could severely stunt the development of millions of poor children. Patients are in pain and dentists are in distress. Untreated teeth are a growing problem. And the coronavirus ravages Little Italy in New York. But first, the big idea. As governors across the country fell into line in recent weeks, South Dakota's top elected leader stood firm. There would be no statewide order to stay home. Such edicts to combat the spread of the coronavirus, Governor Kristi Noem said disparagingly, reflected a herd mentality that she wasn't going to go along with. It was up to individuals, not government, to decide whether to exercise their right to work to worship and to play, or to even stay at home. And besides, the former congresswoman and first-term Republican told reporters just a week ago, South Dakota's not New York City. Welp, now South Dakota is home to one of the largest single coronavirus clusters anywhere in the United States, with more than 300 workers at a giant pork processing plant falling seriously ill. With the case numbers continuing to spike in Sioux Falls, Smithfield was forced to announce the indefinite closure of the facility, which churns out 18 million servings of pork product per day. Increasingly exasperated local leaders, public health experts, and frontline medical workers are pleading with Nome to intervene with a more aggressive state response. She continues to refuse to do so. Sioux Falls Mayor Paul Tenhaken, another Republican, has issued voluntary recommendations but he says in an interview that they're not enforceable in the absence of state action. The governor used a news conference yesterday to announce trials of an anti-malaria drug that President Trump keeps touting as a potential breakthrough in the fight against the coronavirus, despite a lack of scientific evidence. In fact, we learned last night that the CIA has been privately urging its workforce to be leery of taking the drug that Trump keeps pushing, hydroxychloroquine, noting its potentially dangerous side effects, including sudden death, and heart attacks. But Nome, who says that she's not going to put in place a stay-at-home order, boasted that she just had a great phone call with Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, about the drug. With 900 of her people infected now and six dead in a state of fewer than 900,000 people, Nome boasted about her relationship with the White House and said, quote, it's an exciting day. An exciting day. South Dakota's experience shows no part of our country is immune to being ravaged by this invisible enemy. Nome is one of five governors representing relatively rural states, North Dakota, Iowa, Nebraska, and Arkansas are the others still resisting such calls. All the Republicans and all have used similar justifications for ignoring the pleas of the experts. Meanwhile, in Washington, Trump declared on Monday that he has quote, total authority to, quote, call the shots when it comes to deciding how and when to lift the restrictions and reopen the economy, even as governors on both coasts proceeded with their own planning and asserted their own powers. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo called into CNN to say Trump is acting like a king. Cuomo says he will challenge the White House in court if Trump pushes to reopen businesses without enough safeguards to protect public health. Earlier in the day, Cuomo was joined via phone by governors from New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Rhode Island as they formed a pact to coordinate on an eventual end to the restrictions in their states. Later, 
Cuomo announced that Massachusetts, led by Republican Governor Charlie Baker, is joining that block. On the West Coast, the governors of California, Oregon, and Washington announced their own pact to work together to tamp down the ongoing outbreak and carefully restart the economies in their states. Underlining the sharp political and cultural divide that has undergirded the nation's reaction to this contagion, nine of those 10 governors involved in the two groups are Democrats. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, in Miami, schools will extend into the summer and start earlier in the fall, at least for some students. In Cleveland, schools may shrink the curriculum to cover only core subjects. In Columbia, Missouri, this year's lessons will be woven into next year's plans. Some experts suggest holding back more kids, a controversial idea, while others propose a half-grade step-up for some students, an unconventional one. A national teachers' union is proposing a massive national summer school program. All these ideas being discussed would require incredible political will and logistical savvy, and they're already facing resistance from both teachers and parents. They'll also require lots of money, and there's not appetite to appropriate it right now. 17 states have ordered campuses shuttered through the remainder of this academic year. Another three recommend it. And educators across the country are bracing for a lost spring and maybe more. Whenever schools do return, researchers in this space agree that the likely result is a generation of students forced to play catch-up, perhaps for years to come. Most vulnerable are those who are always the most vulnerable. Homeless children, those living in deep poverty, and students with disabilities. While some students are adapting to distance learning, especially the kids of the well-to-do, others are struggling to find quiet spaces to study. They lack reliable internet access, or they need to care for younger siblings during the day, among several other barriers that a lot of us can't even imagine. In some districts, the problem is just getting kids to show up. In the Los Angeles Unified School District, the country's second largest system behind New York, one in four students haven't logged on at all for distance learning. Only about one in four students in the high-poverty Baltimore City public school system even have access to computers. In Atlanta's public schools, about 6,000 children don't have computers, and about 10% of students have not logged into the remote learning system. In Philadelphia's public schools, teachers have been told not to even teach new material over distance learning because of concerns that lessons cannot be equitably provided to all, including the kids who don't have computers. This ends up hurting everyone. More than a million juniors will miss out on the SATs and the ACTs this spring because of the virus. The next testing dates for the two in June are in doubt. By the end of the school year, the two tests are likely to have reached far fewer students than they ordinarily would, creating massive uncertainty for students, but also colleges. The situation is so severe that a growing number of universities are suspending or ending test score requirements for applications. Number two. The pain was going to be worth it. Easter Brown opened her mouth as wide as she could as a dentist here in D.C. yanked out the seven teeth that she had left. At 77 years old, she was finally going to get a full set of dentures. She went home toothless that day in February and waited for the call saying her new smile had arrived. But when her phone finally rang in March, she was told that her dental clinic was shutting down. The risk of dentists and patients spreading the coronavirus was just too high. They promised Brown that they would get her dentures when the clinic reopened. They just weren't sure when that would be. 
and they're still not. Ever since, Brown, already at a higher risk because of her age and asthma, already enduring a newly isolated life, has been talking and chewing with only her gums. Her pain is shared by dental patients across our country who are stuck in yet another consequence of this worsening pandemic. In March, the American Dental Association recommended that all dentistry practices close for everything except emergencies. The organization realized that the most basic routines of dentistry, from close contact with mouths to the water spraying tools that send fluids flying, were suddenly filled with risk. And because so many carriers of the coronavirus lack symptoms, it's impossible to know who's safe to treat and who can safely offer that treatment. Our country's 200,000 dentists are deferring mortgages, applying for loans, and laying off staff, desperate to save their practices. Their patients are calling in similar states of panic with chipped teeth, decaying molars, and receding gums. They're aching, exacerbated by all the free time they have now, and general dread about the future. Together, the patients and the dentists are navigating a question that's only becoming trickier to answer as the contagion spreads. When every interaction is a possible exposure, what counts as an emergency? This is a hard time for medical workers of all stripes. Adding insult to injury, Canadian nurses who work in the United States are being forced to pick a side. About 1,600 nurses who live in Ontario cross the border to work in Detroit hospitals every day. Now, as more than 1,300 people have died of the coronavirus in Michigan, nearly twice as many as in all of Canada, some Canadian officials are pushing to put in place curbs on their travel, a move that would devastate American hospitals if these nurses choose to stay in their home country. Meanwhile, Beaumont Health, the biggest hospital system in Michigan, is going to begin testing the blood of all its workers in what's believed to be the nation's largest antibody coronavirus test. The blood of 38,000 employees, including all those Canadian nurses, will be tested. Number three, Papa Joe Migliucci was the fourth-generation owner of Mario's, a 101-year-old red sauce restaurant on Arthur Avenue in the Bronx. Mo Albanese was known affectionately throughout Manhattan's Little Italy as Mo the Butcher. Both men are among the 10,058 New Yorkers who have succumbed to this contagion. Statistically speaking, their deaths are insignificant. But try telling that to the city's tightly knit Italian American community. Arthur Avenue, which builds itself as the city's true little Italy, isn't just a street. It's a collection of families who've been there for a century. There are a surprising number of Italian Americans who have lost loved ones in Italy and now in America. We're hearing from so many Italian Americans who say their lives are imploding on both ends of that hyphen that defines their identity Italian. And American. Giulio Adriani, a pizza chef from Rome who lives in the Italian Williamsburg section of Brooklyn, has been wrestling with a COVID-19 infection for two weeks now. He says he has no sense of smell or taste. Even water normally has a taste, he said, but the coronavirus takes that away. It's just absence, he says, such terrible absence. Yet pain and panic do not reign uncontested. Just as China set the bar for early restrictions during the pandemic, Italy set one for resilience, especially its balcony sing-alongs and daily applauses for essential workers that have been mimicked worldwide. It was in New York's Little Italy that a lowly tomato pie first sold by the slice for a nickel became the city's iconic street pizza. 
And it was there that an uneducated man from Campania arrived in 1926 to work as a laborer with a pick and a shovel. His name was Andrea Cuomo. His son was Mario. His grandson is Andrew, now the governor, who informed New Yorkers yesterday that while the worst is over, life won't fully return to normal for another 12 to 18 months when there is likely to be a vaccine against the virus. But just like Italian perfume, subtle joys linger. At Antonio's Trattoria, just off Arthur Avenue, most locals are ignoring the owner's offer of 20% off, preferring to pay full price with generous tips. Recently, an anonymous order was placed for $2,000 worth of food for a local hospital. Last week, 20 pizzas, 20 calzones, and 20 chicken parm rolls went out to the emergency ward of another. And a retired firefighter sent a local firehouse a $500 Good Friday lunch of meatballs, penne vodka, and chicken marsala. This virus will not bury us. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, April 14th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>